out of Philly. This is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Oh, so reluctant. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. In today's episode, my Palm Beach Atlantic interns and I, we sit down with Professor Trenton Merricks. Merricks is a professor of philosophy at the University of Virginia who has done amazing work on metaphysics and philosophy religion. Today, we're going to be talking about personal identity over time. We're also going to be talking about life after death. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. My student loan provider greatly appreciates all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, then you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here we are chatting about life after death. Enjoy. All right, so I am sitting here today with Trenton Merricks and my summer interns, Andrew Drinkard and Drew Mercantini. So everyone, why don't you say hello to the audience and just so people can hear your name, get familiar with your voices. So Andrew, why don't you start? Yeah, my name is Andrew Drinkard, and thanks for uh, letting me back on the show, Ryan. My name is Drew Mercantini, and also thanks for having me back on. My name is Trenton Merricks, and uh, thanks for inviting me to be on just this one time. There we go. All right. So let's get our listeners familiar with today's topic. So what we're talking about today is Trenton's new book, Self and Identity. And we want to discuss your chapter on immortality. So maybe you could just kind of briefly lay out the general theme of this chapter for us. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's a great question to start with because it'll frame, I think, what's going to follow. But in some ways, it's a bad question to start with because I think of the chapter as applying a bunch of claims defended bunch of distinctions, hopefully clarified throughout the whole book. So in a way, the first six chapters of the book defend a series of claims related to personal identity and what I'll call survival. We can talk about that in a second. And then the last chapter on immortality is really meant to illustrate the work the views defended in the rest of the book do. So you could think of it as applying the general claims about personal identity in the first six chapters to the philosophy of religion personal mortality in particular. Or mm-hmm. if even if you don't like philosophy religion, you could think of it as a thought experiment that shows the work the claims do, the thought experiment being a certain kind of immortality. So maybe the you know most useful way to answer your question is, uh, I think you're going to ask me some more specific questions about certain claims earlier on in the book that it's nice to see where it's going. And so we're going to try and show how those claims help us to clarify the very idea of personal mortality and also block some pretty familiar objections to its possibility and its desirability. Trenton, what is the difference between persistence and what matters in survival? I guess, yeah. how do you use the word survive in this context? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think of persistence as, first of all, persistence is purely a metaphysical idea. It's it's not normative. Persistence just is one object continuing to exist over time. So you can have something cool like a human being persisting, but you can also have something boring like a lump of wood persisting or a rock persisting or a cell persisting. So persistence is really a single object continuing to exist at different times. I think of what matters in survival. If you want, you can just stipulate this, but it's important to see there's a different topic here. What matters in survival, the way I use that term, and I abbreviate it with the word survive, and you'll see in a second maybe why. 
a future person has what matters in survival for me, just in case it's appropriate for me to anticipate having the experiences they will have, to have self-interested concern with regard to the experiences they will have. If it's true that, say, if something bad happens to them, then I can say right now, that will be bad for me. <laughs> and if something good happens to them, that would be true for me to say right now, that will be good for me. So it's really one of the ways in which personal identity as a topic overlaps with ethics. So I could say something like this. I could say, there will be a future person that will have at that time what matters in survival for me. Reviate that as saying, I will survive. <laughs> and so I'll use survival as a kind of shorthand for there will be a person who will have what matters in survival for me. And that in turn is almost like a shorthand for there will be a future person whose experiences will be good for the me of right now. There will be a future person whose experiences it's appropriate for me to anticipate having in the future. And there will be a person at a future time whose experiences at that time it's appropriate for me to regard with self-interested concern. You can kind of see already that persistence, because say rocks persist, <laughs> isn't the same idea as what matters in survival. Because only agents that can have appropriate anticipation, for example, have access to survival. Right. So they're different ideas. Some people think they pull apart. And I personally disagree that they pull apart. That's the burden of the book is to argue against that. I think it's a coherent idea. The first person I know of to be really explicit about persistence and what I'm calling survival pulling apart is Leibniz. <laughs> so Leibniz has this claim. He thinks that you could persist through amnesia. But he thinks that if you did persist through amnesia, you wouldn't survive. So it would still be, future person would still be you, but it wouldn't be appropriate for you to anticipate their experiences. He, he talks about this both in the context of personal immortality. He says, you know, if in the afterlife, you don't have memories of your current life, then uh, that would be the practical equivalent of not having an afterlife. His probably most famous example is the King of China example. Leibniz, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but was a huge fan of Chinese philosophy and culture. And he would have thought, presumably, that being the ruler of what he thought was like the greatest civilization on earth would be a really cool thing. And so I think he picks becoming the king of China because he thinks that looks like the best thing you could hope for in this life. And he says, uh, suppose you were to become king of China, but right before becoming king of China, you get total amnesia. There'd be nothing good in this for you. This would be the practical equivalent of annihilation. That's a case where Leibniz thinks persistence and survival pull apart. So Leibniz would say you could still persist and become king, but from your perspective right now, you shouldn't look forward to being king. You shouldn't regard that as something good that's going to happen to you. In some places, some people distinguish in Leibniz what they call, he thinks you could have metaphysical identity without moral identity. I don't use that. I, I just think survival has gotten more currency nowadays. Yeah. So after Derek Parfit's work on survival, like that's the word everybody's interested in, right? Yeah. Yeah. The difference between Parfit and Leibniz. So Leibniz thinks that persistence is not sufficient for survival. And Parfit, I mean, Parfit defends a lot of different claims. And I talk more about that in the book. But Parfit thinks it is sufficient for survival, but he thinks it's not necessary. So that's the difference between them. Mm -hmm. Both agree that they pull apart just in different texts. So just following up on these, this distinction that you made between persistence and survival, could you talk a little bit about endurantism and how that relates to persistence on your view? Yeah. So persistence is meant to be a kind of metaphysically neutral term, or at least a little bit neutral. I mean, it, it is the claim one object existing at different times. 
that's what it is to persist. And so, you know, if, if you have a block of wood that exists on Monday and it exists on Tuesday, then we say it persisted. Within the context of persistence, there are different metaphysical theories about what it means to say, or maybe a better way to put it is just what the nature of persistence is or how objects persist. And there are really, I guess, three views out there. Might be others, but three views that get discussed. Uh, one of them is what you might call four-dimensionalism, where an object is spread out over time like it's spread out over space. It's kind of a, Maybe it's a little bit of a metaphor, but the whole object never exists at any one time. The part of the object existing now is numerically distinct from the part existing at other times. Another view, in some ways similar, in some ways different from 4D, is stage theory. And that's the view that you have these numerically distinct objects at different times, but we... I'll put it this way. Stage theorists won't like it. We say they're the same object because they stand in in certain kinds of relations to each other, uh, depending on the kind of object they are. Maybe psychological relations for persons, maybe certain kind of causal relations for a tree. And then the third view is endurantism or endurance, where you say the metaphor, if you want a metaphor. So the metaphor for 4D is the object spread out over time. The metaphor for endurance is the object moves through time. The endurantist thinks that the object that you're looking at, say, right now when you're talking to me, is literally one and the same, numerically the same object as the object you're looking at, wait, 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 now. And so to say an object persists is to say that it exists at one time and is the whole object is numerically identical with something that exists at a later time. So I think endurance is really important and it's required for the argument of my book. So that's all mm-hmm. well on it a little bit. Sometimes we can engage in what I think of as misleading picture thinking. So think about yourself as 80 years old. You might think, oh, there's that 80-year-old human being, you know, what makes him, me, suppose things go poorly, this decrepit 80-year-old, you know, and you kind of have this picture thinking where there's this old guy kind of out there and you wonder how you could be related to that guy such that it would be true to say he will be me. I think if you're a stage theorist, that's not picture thinking at all. That's exactly the real truth, you know, and it's not misleading. Right? So you might say, well, because there's some kind of causal connection between us or something. On the other hand, if you're an endurantist, you should think you can engage in that picture thinking if you want, but it's super misleading. A much less misleading picture would be you look down and you have a little badge on you that says, I will be a decrepit 80 year old. And then you want to like, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with me. I'm the thing with that property. That's it. There's no other old dude out there. So I guess endurance is one theory of persistence, it's the theory I endorse. It's a theory I've defended in kind of other places and defend a little bit in the book. But the main thing in the book is not so much to defend endurance, but to show what an endurance metaphysics of persons, the work it does in the context of questions about what matters in survival. Right. And so I want to make sure I'm following this because typically when I've like published on life after death as it relates to this, I just go straight for endurantism and yeah. like, that's what I need. And I look at all these four dimensional views and stage theory and I'm like, that other guy, maybe he gets to go to heaven, maybe he gets to go to hell. I don't really care. That's not me. But you're making this distinction between mere endurance, mere persistence, and then survival. that has to involve some sort of psychological stuff. That's what I find so interesting about this new book, this sort of plot twist on the story. I guess I want to go deeper into this. So when I'm looking at like my own death, talking about what happens after we die, you talk about this sort of bona fide personal immortality. And you say like, you know, numerical identity is part of the story here. So just explain that a bit for us. Good. So there's really two stages. So to answer your question, the first one is when I think about personal immortality, I think it is saying that I will survive forever. That is, there will always be someone who has what matters in survival for me. 
I think I disagree with Leibniz on the role of memory here, but I agree with him that when you think about the afterlife, you want a good afterlife to be good for you. (laughs) You want to be able to first personally anticipate having that afterlife. You want to be able to have future directed self-interest and concern about that afterlife. So my own view, and I think you can defend this, I think it's pretty plausible, is that the hope for personal immortality is the hope for endless survival. Okay, so that's one idea. So it's not the hope for endless persistence. To just take a really silly example, well, the first part's not silly, the second part is. Here's the first part. The first part is you're identical with a human body. I actually believe that. I think that's right. Suppose I died and became a corpse. Just suppose for the sake of argument, that corpse is, is literally me, but I'm dead. I don't think that corpse existing forever would be bona fide personal immortality, mm-hmm. even though it would be a kind of persistence on the assumptions we just made. So I think that bona fide personal mortality is survival, is endless survival. But I also think, so we've talked a lot about what survival is, what it is to say a future person has what matters for me in survival. That is what it means to say I will survive as Merrick's in the year 3800 or whatever. Here's a different question. How do I have to be related to Merrick's at that time in order for me to survive as him? So in the book, that's, I call that the why question, I guess you know that, yeah. So one question is, what does it mean to say that I survive as a future person? A different question is, what would explain my surviving as that person? And those are different questions. I want to say that if I'm numerically identical with that future person, that would explain and imply that I survive as him. Why do I say that? Well, suppose right now there's serious pain out there somewhere. What would it take for it to be appropriate for me to have self-interested concern with regard to that pain? I think this would be sufficient. I'm the one having the pain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? I mean, that just seems totally obvious, I think. Well, you're preaching to the choir with me, so I think this is obvious. But But I think that would be obvious. And, you know, there's interesting questions, what is self-interest so on? But I I think if you understand the concept of self-interested concern, the fact that I'm the person having the pain is sufficient to say it's appropriate for me to have self-interested concern about that. Here's another way to put exactly the same thing. The fact that I'm numerically identical with the person having the pain makes it appropriate to say, explains why it's appropriate for me to have self-interest concern with regard to that. So the relation of numerical identity, I say, delivers what matters in survival. (laughs) That is, being identical with someone is sufficient for me to have appropriate self-interest concern for their experiences. I argue in the book that that's true whether the identity holds, as it were, across time or at a time. So if I'm identical with a person existing, say, 30 seconds from now, and you say that person will be in excruciating pain, that's sufficient to make it appropriate and explains why it's appropriate for me to say that will be bad for me. I anticipate being in pain <laughs> and I have self-interest concern with regard to that. That's bad news because it's bad for me. It's It's not the worst possible news. If one of my kids is going to be excruciating pain, that might be worse news, but it's different news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not anticipating the pain. It's not self-interest concern about it, and it's not bad for me in that way. So my thought was, if you think numerical identity is sufficient for appropriate self-interested concern, then you should think it's sufficient for appropriate self-interest concern when you're numerically identical with a future person having that experience. Mm -hmm. And if that's appropriate to have self-interest concern for a future experience, that implies, I think, I argue in the book, appropriate for me to anticipate having that experience. And that implies that it will be bad for the me of right now. 
And all that together means that I'll survive as that person. So I think if you have a different view about persistence, if you have, for example, a stage theoretic view, you could maybe try and defend that conclusion, but you couldn't use my argument for it. You couldn't go from the fact that I'm right now having pain makes it appropriate for me to regard it as my own. (laughs) Therefore, the fact that someone identical with me is having pain makes it appropriate for me to regard it as my own. So far, okay. But the stage theorists can't then say, and since I stand in the relation of numerical identity to whoever I persist as, I have that same explanation for why I would survive. They can't say that. It's part of their view that you don't stand in numerical identity to that person. Right. So the thought is, my thought is, first, one concept is survival, a different concept is persistence. But if you're an endurantist, and I think only if you're an endurantist, that's a further claim, you can argue that if you persist as a future person, then you will survive as them. And if you don't persist, then you won't. (laughs) And so I think that persisting forever will give you and is required for personal mortality, but it's not the same thing. Why? Because personal mortality is appropriate anticipation forever of future experiences. Persistence is not that. But for the reasons we've just talked about, I think if you're an endurantist, you can think they go hand in hand. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. Um, Let me see if I'm, I'm getting this right. So there's one sense in which I could say, I survive just in terms of mere persistence as a corpse. I mean, if you think of uh, this, this seminar I, I saw Hud Hudson do, he drew all these teddy bears on the whiteboard to represent all these different views. And this one in particular, it was the teddy bear, which is like X's over its eyes. And he's like, you persist as a corpse, you know, and he's in just this sort of like Hud kind of way. And it's yeah. just, just, it was great. Uh, and you're like, well, I, I'm going to persist, I guess, but that's not really, that's not the interesting kind of immortality that yeah. anybody's interested in, right? I mean, right. you want something else. Yeah. And I also want to sort of agree with, you know, sometimes, so people like, well, Leibniz and both William James make this move. They distinguish between persistence and survival. And then they say, so what we really want is then they add some about psychological continuity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to back up. I want to agree with them on the distinction, mm-hmm. but then argue that persistence alone could be sufficient for survival given endurance. Right. No, that makes sense to me. I want to talk about the narrative identity stuff, though, because this is what I thought was quite interesting, because I've got a a book coming out on divine temporality, and I look at a lot of these accounts of life after death, and I had a symposium on it, and Alan Rhoda was just just like, I like this endurance stuff, but that cannot be enough for like life after death there's got to be like this this narrative thing and i'm like i don't know maybe so this is something you're interested in in this new book so let's get into that so so we've got numerical identity we've got this thing called self-narrative identity as well and so you say on this view persons could not survive upon their glorification or their transformation in like the new heaven and new earth you know when we're resurrected yeah so just kind of give us the rundown of this self-narrative account and then maybe like some of the reasons why you think that's just not going to get us survival I'm going to back up if that's okay. Sure. I think that there's a reason why the immortality chapter comes at the end of the book. Mm. That is because it's, 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 it's abstract in a way. And, and you can find yourself thinking things are like, I don't know, super weird and mysterious because mm-hmm. it's, it's own way weird and mysterious. But a lot of these questions have much more mundane applications that I think we should start with. So I'm really interested in the idea that, say, children can survive growing up. Oh, right. Okay, sure. And I don't know, did you guys get a hard copy of the book? No, we just got a digital. Okay, well, the author's photograph is a seven-year-old me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I like the contrast of, you know, that seven-year-old kid and then underneath it, you know, is the yada yada professor or whatever. Right. (laughs) Because it really is one person. 
But I, I like starting with this idea. I mean, I definitely think when you have a toddler that it would be bad for that toddler to grow up to live a terrible life of, I feel like any actual examples I give of terrible lives, now we shouldn't be talking philosophy. It's sad. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Some life of brutal suffering, it'd be bad for that child. I think that implies, if you agree with that, then I think you have to say that child will survive as that adult. On the, what I call the self-narrative account, and there are different kinds. What I'm calling the self-narrative account in the book is the view that survival goes along with you're having an implicit story about what your life is like that encodes the central values and projects and desires you have. And that if you were to change so radically that you lose that narrative or you exchange that narrative for a radically different one, then you wouldn't really survive. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit to remind you of Leibniz. Leibniz would be like, if you lose your memories, you don't survive, even if you persist. What I call the self-narrative account is if the story you tell yourself about what your life is about changes so radically that you no longer have the same values, desires, and projects, you no longer have the same self-conception, you no longer have the same quote-unquote identity and some sense of identity, Mm -hmm. then you don't survive. And if you just think about it and you think about you now and maybe someone a million years from now in heaven, you could be like, oh, maybe, maybe that wouldn't be me. But I want to start with the easier case and think, you know, I think that toddler probably doesn't even have a self-narrative, but I think they can survive. Or take a, maybe a seven-year-old kid. I tried to pick a picture of where I thought the youngest age, everyone would agree you might have some sort of self-narrative. Uh, take a seven-year-old kid. I, I mean, I can tell you I'm 56. My self-narrative is different than when I was seven. And my values and desires and projects are different. So my worry is that the self-narrative account will treat things like, I don't know, whatever happens between ages seven and 15, puberty and all those things where you just, where you change in really radical ways, would treat that as the practical equivalent of annihilation. That is, you wouldn't survive any of that. I think that's a mistake. And I, and I think once you then, once you then allow that a child can survive becoming an 80 year old, you can't require, in my opinion, for survival, any kind of robust psychological connectedness. You have to allow radical psychological change. So I kind of think there are great reasons to just reject that requirement on survival in this life and mm-hmm. for great reasons to reject it for the afterlife. I'll also just add, I think the changes, even though everyone listening to me is a wonderful human being, my guess is when you're glorified in a billion years old, you'll be radically different than you are now. Right. At least if, I would hope so. I would. Yeah, right. No, that's right. Yeah. So I think any kind of heavy psychological connectedness requirement would preclude persisting not only through childhood, but also through glorification and whatever else would go on for a very long time. Okay. I want to make sure I'm getting the, like the gist of the argument here. So when I was seven, for some reason, I wanted, I had two job aspirations. One was to be a pizza maker, which I did by the time I was 16. And the other one was to be a lumberjack who lived in the city because the city, that's where things are. So I want to commute to the forest. Apparently, I don't know. Now, that was my sense of self. That was the narrative I was telling myself. And I've clearly not gone anywhere near the direction of being a lumberjack who lives in the city. So you'd have to say, well, that... That's an even harder job to get than philosopher. Right, yeah. yeah. So that kid's gone. He's annihilated. And that just seems, like, ridiculous. Yeah. So if it's ridiculous in this case, that like, that's yeah. going to be a criteria for just survival from 7 to now I'm yeah. 40. And, and, and to be clear, the view I'm describing here doesn't say that the kid is literally annihilated. You can right. sit through it. But it is, and here I'm just drawing on expression from Leibniz, the practical equivalent of an annihilation, that it wasn't good for that child that you 
became a philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, well, maybe it wasn't really that good for the child that it became a philosopher. Or uh, that. But, yeah. Yeah. But this still seems like there's a concern there. And so if this doesn't really capture our intuitions just from the age of seven to being an adult, then surely that cannot be used to capture our intuitions from death to resurrection. Like that's the big idea, right? I don't know how special intuitions are and I try not oh, to sure. use the word. But yeah, the thought is if you agree with me that a child can survive growing up. And what I mean by that is that, say, if you're looking at a toddler and you're told this toddler will have this amazing adulthood, then you should think, oh, that'll be good for that kid. Yeah. Or this child will have this brutally awful adulthood. That'll be bad for that child. If you agree with those things, then you agree that the child will survive as the adult. It seems to me just a fact that, uh, at least typically, uh, there's a change in self-narrative from childhood to adulthood. So you should agree, if you agree with all that, that same self-narrative can't be a requirement for survival. And then there are lots of other, lots of other cases, you know. That's really helpful. I know another option that people take in this conversation about survival is they'll say that survival comes in degrees. Yeah. So why, why would they take this option and how do you push back on it in your own work? Yeah. I, if you remember a little bit ago, I said, here's a question that I call the why question. How do I have to be related to a future person for that person to have what matters in survival for me? The answer I gave was be numerically identical with them. Other people will say, for example, be psychologically connected with them. And psychological connectedness itself comes in degrees. You can be more or less psychologically like a future person. If you answer the why question in terms of, say, psychological connectedness or anything that comes in degrees, then you're at least set up to argue that survival comes in degrees. <laughs> so, you know, versions of this are explicitly in Parfit and David Lewis and in, in Jeff McMahon, where all of them want to say basically a future person, the more they change psychologically, the less I survive as them. <laughs> and I think on that view, any version of personal immortality where you continuously change as opposed to remain exactly the same forever, which would, I think probably be boring. Don't really know, but is going to be a view where ultimately you'll cease to survive, even though you keep persisting. Why? Because eventually the degree will go down to zero, I guess, you know, hmm. you know, maybe you think it approaches zero as a limit never gets there. That's still not bona fide immortality. You know, that I barely, 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 barely survive. <laughs> So the view that survival comes in degrees, everyone I know who defends it, defends it by way of arguing that the answer to the why question comes in degrees and survival wanes as the explanation of survival wanes. On my view, numerical identity is what explains survival. And I think everybody agrees numerical identity doesn't come in degrees. And so since something can't be, you know, 0.7, I numerically identify. <laughs> right. Survival won't come in degrees. So whatever explains why I, it's appropriate for me to have self-concern for the pain I'm in right now holds to that same degree, numerical identity, 1.0, to mm -hmm. marriage in a million years as well. So. so you mentioned boredom a second ago. I want to I get into this because there's this common objection that if you get to heaven, you're going to be bored because maybe people are just thinking like they're sitting on a cloud all day playing Monopoly or some other game with a bunch of angels and they're just like, I just can't take this anymore. Get me out Monopoly's of here. Monopoly's brutal. It's awful. It's a brutal game. It's a brutal game because every, everyone but the winner loses everything. Yeah. You know? yeah. It really is. It's like, yeah, winner take all and just everyone else. Ooh. 
and then like sometimes like I watch a lot of these movies and you'll see someone get like a special power for like eternal youth and they live forever and then they just get tired of living century after century, millennia after millennia and so on. But 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 you're just like, no, I'm not having any of this. I disagree with this entirely. So like why think we won't eventually become unbearably bored in heaven? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. It's it's incredibly common. There are a variety of moves here. Let, let, let me begin and make the first one. A seven-year-old can't know what it's like to be a 50-year-old who's living a rich life. They just can't. They just don't know. And for a seven-year-old to say, I don't know, I won't be all 70 or whatever. You know, I won't like to play with my toys. That'll suck. I don't want to be 50. I'll be totally bored. I watch 50-year-olds and they just all sit around and talk. They never play with things, you know. Seven-year-olds just wrong. They don't. They have no idea what it'll be like. I think we have no idea what it'll be like to be glorified and a billion years old. So I, I don't think we should be like, I can somehow tell that I'll be bored. So that, that's the first move. Second move is even the people who think they can somehow tell that they'll be bored are imagining that they will be basically more or less the same forever. So even the people who, so I'm thinking like Bernard Williams, for example, and Shelley Kagan, from philosophers, they recognize that if they were to undergo radical psychological changes, that they wouldn't be bored, or at least they don't claim they right. would be. But their response is undergoing those kinds of changes, I'll use my lingo, you can't survive that because what makes you survive as a future person is some kind of psychological connectedness. So I think that if you recognize that you can survive through radical psychological changes, like you do from being seven to being 50, then you should think that you could survive radical psychological changes from 50 to 150 to 250 and so on. But you can see how that's tied up to my giving an answer to the why question in terms of numerical identity that doesn't come in degrees, that it's consistent with breaks in psychological connectedness. I think, do you guys know the television show, The Good Place? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's wonderful. So at the very end, if, you know, I, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but it's been, I, I think the show's been out long enough. It's you been can out spoil. long enough. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And uh, at the end, you know, Eleanor and Chidi, I think are their names, the, mm-hmm. the main characters. They basically, they've been around for, you know, a bunch of Jeremy Baramies, like zillion years. <laughs> they basically, they're just bored. They're tired. And so they, it seems like they choose annihilation ceasing to exist. They're not really much different. I mean, they're nicer. They're more mature. There has been some soul-making, maybe some character development, but they're pretty much the same. So maybe it is plausible they would get bored. I, I don't think we know, but you know, maybe. But I also like, one of the sophisticated things about the show is there's another character that people don't always notice in the end, and that's Tahani, who mm-hmm. is learning new skills. She becomes a woodworker, all that kind of stuff. And then she becomes an architect, which are like these archangels or something, these semi-divine beings. And she doesn't get bored. Like when the show ends, she's still moving on, but she's changing in radical ways. So I'm a little bit attracted to the kind of Gregory of Nyssa view that in heaven, we slowly become more and more like God. I don't quite know what that means, but I think it's kind of continuous improvement that doesn't come to an end. Mm-hmm. And I just find it, I think it's really fun that The Good Place leaves room for, you know, the person who we never see saying, I'm bored, I want to cease to exist now, is the person who becomes an architect. Uh, So I thought that's really cool. I thought it was interesting because, yeah, when I went through and watched the show like a second time, I noticed like 
her story just kind of drops off and then they just focus on Eleanor and Chidi. And I was like, hang on, wait a minute. Somebody did not yeah. get bored here. And it's because they're actively trying to become a, like a more and more like interesting and better person. Like they just yeah. never stopped. And, yeah. Different kind of thing. Maybe, you know, in, in, in the way yeah. in which a 50 year old is a different kind of thing than a toddler. Yeah. Well, Tritton, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 